and more than anything else, I think, realise, look how resilient we've been. This came out of nowhere. It has swept the world. It has broken hearts. It has broken families. It has broken economies. But we're all somehow getting on with getting on. And that being human has something much more important to it than, than stuff. That's, I think, the message I hope we'll all take out of it. Welcome. My name is Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from international guests who are authors, grief professionals, and ordinary people, all with a unique perspective on grief and loss. Loss and the resulting grief can really have such a profound effect on our lives, and it is my intention that these conversations may provide some comfort, hope, and inspiration to you, our listeners. If you find the podcast supportive, please do consider becoming a patron on patreon.com. Even a euro or a dollar per month can help keep us going. For more grief resources and grief supports, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing, this episode of Shapes of Grief. I am delighted to be joined by Catherine Mannix, Dr. Catherine Mannix from the UK. Catherine, you're so welcome. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me back, Liz. Lovely to talk to you. So this is our third conversation on the Shapes of Grief podcast. The last time we met was in Ireland um, for the End of Life Forum run by the Irish Hospice Foundation. You'd come over as keynote speaker and we spoke about death and dying in a very different world. What have you noticed about death and dying in the world today, the world of COVID-19, Catherine? What has changed? We're just in a completely different place, aren't we, from six months ago. You know, you and I were talking about how difficult it is to get people to talk about dying, to get dying talked about sensibly in the media. And now suddenly the actual D words, death, and dying and dead are in the newspapers, they're on the radio, they're on television news. And it was interesting really for me to watch that change from it being death as data, you know, very impersonal, let's not talk about actual dying, to the way gradually we've started to talk about the experience of people who are really sick, the experience of loving somebody who's dying that we maybe can't be with because of the infection control boundaries in hospitals or in care homes and now we're starting to hear the actual stories of people who have been sick enough to die and survived people who've been sick enough to die and have gone on to die and just that awfulness of all of our rituals around grieving being completely interrupted by the virus it's an extraordinary time yeah um, i'm glad you pointed out the statistics that we're hearing, you know, on the news every day and behind every single number is a person who's lived a life, who has loved ones, who's an integral part of their family and their community. And it's so important that we don't lose the humanity um, behind this crisis, isn't it? Absolutely right. And to start off with, I think I was so surprised to hear news bulletins talking about deaths that it took me a while to work out why I was feeling so uncomfortable about it, because clearly in my line of work, I'm not uncomfortable with the idea of talking about dying happening. And it was exactly that. It was realising that they were only talking about data. And the, the humanity, those individuals, those precious lives, were just not being acknowledged to start off with in the news bulletins at all. And yet, there are people all around the world grieving for every single one of those numbers because there were people. Yeah. 
And I think it's there's certain stories that come out that grab our attention. I know certainly in the UK, uh, the two stories that reached me and hit me hard were the young pregnant nurse who died mm. um, and her baby was saved. And there was also a young boy, a 13-year-old boy who died in the early days. I don't know his name. Sorry, I don't know his name. Um, but it's when you hear, when you see their face and hear their story, that you realise there is so much grief and loss happening that's not reaching our ears. We're just, we're just, you know, you see people saying how many today, you know, on some of the the, the social media talks um, by our government here, how many today, it's very de dehumanising. So Catherine, back to my question, I know that in the UK so far, there's been around 25,000 deaths that have been documented, could be a lot more. And that's almost 10% of the global population of people who have died from COVID-19. It's a lot of people, a mm. lot of families who are bereaved. What, what has changed with that amount of, of people dying as a result of COVID-19? What has changed in palliative care? It's a very broad question. I know it's probably requires a layered answer. Yeah, so let's let's break it down a little bit. So first of all, let's think about palliative care in hospitals because a lot of people who have become so sick that they're really struggling to breathe have been brought into hospital and then have discovered that they can't have families with them. And we've changed our rules now so that if you are so sick that you might be dying or if you're a person who needs personal assistance because you've got a physical disability of some sort or your way of understanding the world requires assistance uh, like somebody to sign to you or somebody to help you with your intellectual disability or something like that then you can have somebody with you but it's still very very limited. So families were discovering that as the ambulance doors closed, that was the last time they were ever to see this beloved person. And that has caused some really, really interesting changes in communities. It's changed the way people have talked to each other about things. And it's brought people out to support each other in a really wonderful way. In hospital, that sense of how are we going to help this person to feel less breathless means that for a long time palliative care teams have struggled with being seen as end-of-life teams rather than symptom management experts. And now here they are being called upon to help manage breathlessness or um, people being agitated and restless because the oxygen levels in their brain aren't high enough for them to think clearly or some of the flu symptoms of COVID, like the aches and pains that people get in their muscles. So palliative care teams now are stretched really, really hard between supporting staff who are supporting end-of-life care and supporting staff who are trying to do symptom management. Uh, my colleagues uh, that I've been talking to are saying they've never felt so appreciated in their whole careers. And, you know, we've always felt appreciated by people, but we're welcomed in wards that we didn't know people so well because they weren't, they weren't territory for palliative care patients previously. Things are so mixed in the hospitals where surgical wards have been turned into medical wards, have been turned into intensive care units. It's quite extraordinary. In the community, I think things are, are quite different and it's very, very difficult for people. So palliative care teams are very stretched, supporting community nurses, supporting residential care homes, supporting patients in their own homes who are having uh, treatment, palliative care treatments for illnesses that they were already suffering from. So palliative care teams already had a caseload in the community. And now in addition, there are these vast numbers of people skating very close to dying feeling very breathless at home. Um, one of the things that's been very lovely for us is to realise that all those years we've spent managing breathlessness for people with a variety of conditions means that we're really well placed to give advice about breathlessness management. And it turns out it's not that difficult to make the breathlessness sensation quite tolerable. 
for people with this illness. Even when their oxygen levels are, are quite low, they can be surprisingly chipper about their actual breathing. So lots of good advice being given out, but sometimes just not enough hours in the day to do the number of visits at home that people normally would like to do. So lots of virtual support going on. We're all exploring lots of different um, contact platforms, and Zoom and Microsoft meetings and Skype and heaven knows what else so that people can talk to their palliative care nurse. We've had, you know, grandchildren showing grandparents how to use WhatsApp video calls. And it's it's very, very interesting. But it means that the services are very stretched. And I think that mm. a lot of my colleagues feel anxious that their patients are not getting the level of support at the moment that they could have been given six months ago when there wasn't all of this going on. I think the public, though, they understand that everybody's doing their absolute best. Um, we've got this thing on Thursday evenings here in the UK. You might be doing it in Ireland as well, where everybody comes out at eight o'clock in the evening and claps for carers. Um, and I think people really do appreciate everything that frontline carers are doing. And I was saying to my checkout lady in the supermarket last week on Thursday nights, I clapped for her. Because these people are taking a risk coming to work. Yeah. They don't know who's coming past their till. You know, at, at least possibly in the health service, you've got your PPE and you know that you're dealing with somebody who's got positive swabs. But there are heroes working out in our high streets and delivering things to our doors, aren't there, who are just doing yeah. fantastic work. It's the yeah. idea of frontline staff has totally changed now, really. It's yeah. not just uh, healthcare workers, but like you say, it's the delivery trucks, the people who are working, you know, right through this crisis to mm. get food to our doorsteps. We have a whole new appreciation for that. Um, Catherine, back to just that image of the ambulance doors closing and somebody saying goodbye to their loved one, knowing that they they wouldn't see them again, particularly in the early days where visiting was so much more strict. And I think there was a lot of fear going around um, and, you know, myths maybe being per perpetrated as well. Um, the fear of these awful isolated deaths by COVID in hospital. And we fear what we don't know when we mm. don't understand something. It becomes very scary and we fill in the blanks and we often fill them in with information that could be a lot worse than the reality. Would you, and it, it might sound um, morbid, but I think ultimately would be helpful. Could you take us through what it might be like for somebody who is dying of COVID? Because for some people why they might interpret that question as quite morbid for other people it could be a tremendous relief to understand the process and what their loved one may have gone through and it might help to dispel some of the myths that we create in our own minds when we don't understand something fully yeah i, I think i think that's a really really good question so we know that normally when somebody we love is dying, we try to be with them. We try to sit around their bed or around their room. We're in and out of the room. We're chatting to each other. We're doing all that reminiscing. And we're creating a story about the way that person died, aren't we, that we then tell at the wake and we tell for our comfort and for other people to understand it afterwards so that everybody understands when that person was last awake, what was the last thing they said, what was the last thing they drank, little moments that you didn't realise were important as you lived them become important moments when you look back at them. And all of that is being removed. So now we've got this situation where the ambulance doors close and nobody knows what happened next. But it's not true that nobody knows what happened next. So the paramedics are in that ambulance with their tender hearts transferring this person. And I've had paramedics describing to me watching those doors close from the other side because somebody's inside now with the person they're transporting, seeing the wide-eyed family as a kind of last shot before the doors close and feeling that sense of responsibility that this person's deeply loved and it's down to me now to take them 
to hospital in a way that's safe and to know their name and to call them by their name and to talk to them and to reassure them. And obviously they're putting oxygen masks on them and checking that they're safe throughout the journey. When people come into the hospital, people are working very hard to get to know their names, to get to know the names of the people who are important to them, to establish as quickly as possible whether that person's got any very strong views about the way they are treated. There are some people who want to have absolutely every possible chance of surviving. And there are other people who say, you know, I'm already uh, a person who's sick. I'm already a person who's old. Actually, don't mess me around. Make me comfortable, but don't do anything that's too terrifying and technological to me. So understanding the person's preferences are really, really important as well. And then they get to the ward or the intensive care unit where they're going to be looked after. And staff are working terribly hard to maintain family communications. So I know it's happening at Ireland and it's certainly happening here as well. Um, but the hospital where I work has acquired um, tablets for every single ward. And it's a huge hospital, so that's a huge number of tablets. So anybody who doesn't have their own smartphone, there's a ward tablet that can be used with all the you know fancy control of infection rigmarole that goes on so that they can make video calls or audio calls to their families. I've heard a story about a granddad listening to his grandchildren singing nursery rhymes to him with the tablet on the pillow beside him. And he was too tired to sit up and chat, mm. but he could hear their voices and he was smiling, you know, it's oxygen mask over his nose and, and those lovely voices in his ear. So staff are working really hard, not just to make sure that the drugs are given and the observations are made, but that the bed is comfortable, that the pillows get turned around so that the cool side is towards you when you've been feeling hot and bothered, um, that, you know, that your drink is cool if that's the way you like it. They're doing the things your family might do for you at home, as well as doing the things that professional staff will do to look after somebody at work. Um, and so, They're there because they care. Hi everyone, excuse this brief interruption. It's Liz here and I wanted to tell you about my grief training programme. If you are interested in becoming grief literate or grief trained, I've designed a comprehensive online programme which you can do at your own pace in your own time. It's been designed primarily for healthcare providers, but we all have a right to grief training and education. So if you're interested, then it's for you too. Sign up today at shapesofgrief.com. Now, back to the podcast. As well. Yeah. They're there because they care and that is an integral part of the care is emotional care, loving care, particularly in the absence of a family member. Yeah. Is that right, Catherine? So so really important to, to know that people are working their best. It's not the same as having you next to the bed all of the time. Obviously, staff have to come and go and look after other people as well. But there's a constant checking. There's a constant thinking about what is the experience that this person is having how can we make it a better experience for them i've heard wonderful stories i know there are some hospitals that are keeping patient diaries and they're jotting down notes beside the bed which the person can take home when they get well enough again but the people who don't survive that's a really precious resource for their families because it records those things that we think about the last time somebody was awake the last thing that they talked about the last drink that they had now it's all in the diary instead. And these are very important things. Staff are working hard to get letters and messages and photographs from the family sent to the hospital beside the bed, beside the right person's bed. Um, and, you know, in a system that used to be well capable of losing somebody's own false teeth, the fact that they now can actually get the right photos of the right beloveds to the right bedside. I, you know, things are coming on. That's, there's room, room for optimism here. So that's the patient experience. And lots of people have come home and said, you know, obviously I was alone for, for some of the time, but the, the nurses were so kind and the, the doctors were lovely and, and the housekeepers all knew my name. And, you know, everybody who comes into the room has dealings with the person and are trying to stop the loneliness that we all realise must be going on for them. So your question was about the process of dying, and I think it's important to put it into the background context of what's it like to be a patient in the hospital right now. 
We know that this virus causes a really severe pneumonia-type illness, and that's what makes people feel so breathless. And as that's happening, the oxygen levels in their blood are dropping. Having low oxygen levels in our blood can make it difficult to think completely clearly. And having an illness that's as severe as this COVID illness is, is a little bit like having a really bad dose of flu. And you know yourself that you spend a lot of the day snuggled down under your blankets, just being asleep. And these very sick people, they spend a lot of the day snuggled down under their blankets, just being asleep. And even if we were sitting next to them, they'd be ignoring us. So they're not wide awake for vast amounts of the day wondering why they're alone. Largely, they are tired, they're weary, they're not feeling terribly well, and they're asleep a lot of the time. For people who become so sick that dying is starting to happen, their blood oxygen levels are carrying on dropping as their lungs deteriorate. And that means they start now to be unable to remain conscious. So we're not just talking about being asleep now, like any of us would if we had flu. We're talking about dipping in and out of complete unconsciousness. And one of the things about being completely unconscious is you're not aware of any of the sensations from your body. So you don't feel those muscle aches and pains anymore. You don't feel that sense of being breathless anymore. You are unconscious of anything. And we see people dipping in and out of unconsciousness. And when you and I have talked about this in the past, we've talked about that being a phase that can last for days and sometimes a week or more in people who are dying of heart diseases and lung diseases and cancers. In COVID, it happens much more quickly. It's a change that seems to happen over several hours to a day or so. It becomes apparent that this person is now very likely to die. Families will be informed of that. They'll be invited to have somebody alongside the patient. Obviously, that has to be somebody who's fit enough not themselves to then become ill. So it can't be very often their spouse if it's an older person, because we'll be shielding their spouse as well. Mm. And at the very end of that person's life, their breathing will just be on an automatic cycle. And again, you and I have discussed how usually that's a cycle that moves between being very fast and maybe a bit panty sounding and then slower and maybe breathing out through your vocal cords. So it makes groaning noises and important for families to know that that's an unconsciousness thing, not a groaning and pain thing. Now, because these people have very low oxygen levels, the chemical sensors in their brain drive their breathing to be very fast. And this might be important also for people who've decided to stay at home and families are looking after people who are dying at home of COVID. And they've reached the stage of being unconscious, but their breathing is running like a train. And everybody who's around them is worried that they are feeling very breathless, that they're panting, that they're gasping for air. In fact, they're completely unconscious at this stage. And it's just a reaction of that low oxygen in the blood telling the brain to drive the breathing faster. And they're completely unconscious of it, but they might be breathing very fast indeed. And then the breathing starts to slow as the brain itself starts to slow down. And that centre that drives the breathing starts to switch itself off. And there are pauses in the breathing. And then there will be a breath out that seemed like the previous breath out, but just doesn't get followed by another breath in. So people are not awake, desperate for breath. They're not casting their eyes around wondering where their beloveds are. They're deeply unconscious by the time they get to the point that their final breaths are approaching. And in the period before that, when they're in and out of consciousness, now we're allowing a visitor, he'll be recognised by that person and we're all trying very hard to support the visitors as well. So although it's terribly difficult not to be with people the picture we can paint in our minds can be much more frightening, I think. That's exactly what I was just thinking. Yeah. The stories can be infinitely more distressing than the reality. So you were saying there, Catherine, that somebody could be with that person if they're in hospital. That person must wear PPE gear. Is that right? In the UK yeah. Yeah. still. And that's a whole other aspect 
happen, isn't it? The PPE gear and trying to trying to get our humanity out through from behind the mask and behind the screen. Mm. A friend of mine is a consultant, a respiratory consultant, and himself and his team printed up photos of themselves and they wear them on the front of the PPE gear so mm. with their name so that uh, patients can maybe recognise them if they're well enough. How is that being managed in the UK? Well, lots lots of, of similar ideas. So in fact, the, f the first photos of people wearing their photos on their PPE that I came across were from the Beaumont Hospital in, in Dublin. Yeah, that's yeah. where my friend works. <laughs> uh, and, and that's a very widespread practice now and it's an absolutely fantastic yeah. idea. Um, people have got photographs of themselves on their mobile phones. So they're introducing themselves to their patient and then saying, look, this is what I normally look like. And so it's, it's a photo of me in my normal life. So it's people with their dogs, people with their families. Um, actually, perhaps a, a snapshot into the personal life of the doctor or the nurse who's looking after them that patients wouldn't normally get. We are, we are seeing some really interesting changes, aren't we? Um, we've been talking a lot about how do we communicate from behind PPE. So um, the PPE that most people will be wearing at the bedside will include a mask that comes right up to the bridge of your nose and goes right underneath your chin. So just your eyes are showing. Um, some people are also wearing those netty hats. So, you know, you've got a kind of strip of eye and eyebrow and that's the only bit that's available. Uh, there's no flesh showing. You've got gloves on your hands. Uh, you might be wearing, well, depending on what, what you're at the bedside to do, but you might be wearing a long-sleeved gown or you might be wearing your bare-below-the-elbow usual clobber with a, a, a plastic apron over the top. But we can't touch somebody's hand with our hand. We're touching somebody's hand with our gloved hand. Um, and I think we've got a lot of beliefs about that, that maybe we need to be challenging a little bit. The person is feeling contact. The person is feeling the warmth of your hand through your glove. So, you know, one of the things we've been talking about uh, is the communication behind PPE might require us to make all of our bodily gestures a little bit bigger than usual. Yes that we shouldn't feel silly for using our facial expressions. Again, a lot of these conversations mm. where we're updating families, these are telephone conversations instead of in person, and they can't see us. But when we use our facial expressions, it changes the tone of our voice. It communicates something in addition to the words. So we're encouraging yeah. doctors and nurses wearing PPE to still use their faces for their communication and to exaggerate the the head nodding and the arm gestures that mm. we might use. And then I saw somebody make a really helpful suggestion a couple of weeks ago, which is one of the things that happens when we're chatting to each other is we read the emotion in each other's faces. And in fact, we'll take that a little bit further. We read what we think the emotions are on each other's faces. And sometimes we might get that wrong, mightn't we? So this person was saying, rather than asking somebody to work out whether your eyes are closing a little bit because you're smiling or because you're frowning or because you're trying to stifle a sneeze, actually name your emotions. Yeah. So, you know, I'm having this conversation with you. And as we're having the conversation, I'm feeling sad that I've got my face masked up and we can't talk to each other as clearly as I would like. How does it feel for you? Yeah. So not making it about me, but actually bringing who I am and what I'm feeling into the conversation in a much more obvious way than we normally would do. The other project that I uh, got consulted about was somebody who uh, is an ITU anaesthetist, uh, a, a woman called Ray, uh, uh, Rebecca Grimaldi. And she was talking to a patient who'd been discharged from the intensive care unit. So hooray, had survived and was, was going out again. And he had been terrified by not being able to understand communications with people behind PPE, particularly because he was intubated, he was ventilated, the ventilator was making a noise, there's banks of monitors making chiming noises. And he said it would have been helpful if people had had something written down at the same time as they were saying it. So she has started something called Card Medic, 
and if you put it in a search engine, it will pop up straight away. It's free of charge to use. And she's got conversations on cards that you can either have as laminated um, flashcards so you can wipe them clean between conversations with people. And also because they're laminated, you can write onto them with one of those semi-permanent markers and then wipe it off for the next person's conversation. Or you can bring them up on your mobile phone. And I was asked to help with the end of life conversations. And that was really, really interesting because we had to then deconstruct how do you have the conversation that asks somebody whether if they were so sick that their life could be in danger, they would want us to tell them that or not. And then how do you pace that conversation so that you stop sufficiently frequently that the person can take in what we're saying and decide whether or not they want us to continue now or whether that's enough for now and we could continue later or whether that's enough and I just don't want to talk about this anymore. So it clearly can't be one scrolling screen that goes from we're feeling worried about you as the opening thing to we think we, you might die in the next few hours, three, three phrases down. You can't do it like that. So deconstructing that conversation and realizing how much of that conversation when we have it with warmth and empathy is about asking questions and not about making statements. It's about asking people how they feel things are going and listening to their interpretation of events and working out whether in fact they are more scared than they need to be and whether what we need to tell them should be reassuring or whether in fact it hasn't occurred to them that they could be getting so sick and do we need to help them to be more aware of that or would they prefer not to be so aware of that? So listening more than we speak and asking more questions than the statements we make, it was a really important part of offering some menus, if you like, for mm. the cards, for the card medic conversation. It's a skill. It's a real skill, isn't it? And I think a, an overriding theme I'm hearing from you, Catherine, is how our communications are actually deepening as a result of having to wear PPE gear, do things differently, not having family members maybe present. We're having to dig deeper to connect with those we want to connect with mm. um you know uh my friend in beaumont i love i love that that's where you saw it you know let's put our pictures there let's show our humanity through our iphone with uh grief counseling i've moved you know we've moved all our sessions online and i would have worked online anyway with um complicated grief therapy with people in different countries and initially, when I first thought about it years ago, I was very skeptical, you know, how, because I would work with the body so much and co-regulation and how could we possibly do this via a screen? But it's actually incredible, you know, when your intention is to be present, full of integrity, connecting with someone, deeply listening, you sense that, that is sensed, you know, through the screen, um, even though somebody could be miles away. And you're required to draw on parts of yourself that you may not actually do in person either. Um, a deep sense of presence to truly listen so you don't miss anything. Yeah, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, you know, that we communicate in all sorts of ways, not just physically present, you know, um, not just verbally yeah, and I don't know how you feel about this, but, you know, the sense of an energetic communication where, you know, I was walking along the beach the other day and suddenly out of nowhere, I started thinking about a woman I know in a funny scenario a couple of years ago where I was holding her foot. And then I looked up and I saw this woman who looked just like her and I thought, oh, my gosh, there's Yasha. And then as I got closer, it was like, it is her. Um, <laughs> and it's it's almost like, gosh, I downloaded that before she came along. Um, and that would happen quite regularly. And other people would say the same. We think deeply about someone and then the phone rings and it's them. Mm. What part of us, what is that, that we could maybe tune into a bit more in these times 
I don't know. What do you think about that? I, I think it's one of those great mysteries, isn't it? That uh, that sense of going to make a phone call to somebody and as your phone up, they are calling you. That has happened to so many of us so many times that you think, well, you know, what, what on earth is that about? Are we both seeing the same weather? It reminds us of an event we shared together. Well, that could be so if we're, you know in the same little bit of land, but it happens around the world, doesn't it? It's absolutely fantastic. That's that kind of sense of serendipity or or the, the moment where you find the guidance that's just the guidance you needed in the words of a complete stranger or you see, you know, an advertising slogan and actually you take a completely different meaning from it because that's the guidance that you needed right now. I think we're all being more open-minded aren't we we're we're awake to possibilities that perhaps we weren't so awake to before I think in grief you know one of the one of the tasks um, of the grieving process is to relocate our deceased loved ones you know something that's really difficult is they're here they're alive and then suddenly they're not here they're dead where are they Mm. where do I find them now where do I locate them and that can take a long time it can take a you know a few weeks it can take a few years but people find them somewhere and I think we can do that with our loved ones when they're still alive as well as you know how do I carry them in my heart or in my sea swim or in the apple tart I bake or the lemon meringue pie it's that sense of bringing people in and locating them in our actions or in our body or in a feeling but it's it's um, a type of communication connection that this virus may well bring more to the forefront we're going to have to find ways of doing that more and more yeah I think that's really interesting and I I listened to a really interesting uh, episode of BBC Women's Hour about two weeks ago which they dedicated to the Covid epidemic and talking about dying which I think showed great courage on their part and they had some fantastic speakers Um, and I was in particular impressed by a woman who was a listener who'd got in touch with the story of her father dying, having been taken away with those ambulance doors closing, and that was the last time they were ever to see each other. And she talked about making a positive choice to visualise him being calm in a bed, to visualise him being the resilient man that she knew him to be, And even though she knew that he may be afraid and that he may be breathless and she definitely knew he had a cough because she knew about that before he went into hospital, she was able to make a choice of accompanying him in her mind in a way that was soothing for her and soothing for her image of him. And that helped her to get through it. And I just thought that was a really courageous act on her part. Because I would have been tempted to worry. I would have felt myself worrying about the breathlessness or the loneliness or, you know, some other feature of that person that I love that might be their vulnerability. And she deliberately chose to focus on what she knew were his strengths Mm. in order to visualize him using his strength to soothe himself and to remain calm very resourceful and it is a reminder of you know what we were saying earlier on in the conversation our stories can just run amok and we have to be so careful what we're giving our energy to you know um we really do we have you know it is just a story it's a narrative in our head is this true how can I be sure that this is true is there possibly another reality and, and that woman seems to have been able to do that immediately. Catherine, I, I have a couple of questions here um, that I'd love your, you know, your take on. And certainly things have changed in Ireland as well as in England. I know the Irish Hospice Foundation put out a recommendation that nobody should die alone. And where possible, we really need to facilitate a family member being able to be present there. And the same has happened in the UK. 
But in the early days, people did die alone in hospital. We're not alone. I don't think anybody died alone because there was always some staff around. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah, you'd be right. That staff worked really, really hard to make sure that people were not dying alone. And, And I find even that really fascinating because the time that people are actually at the very end of their life, as we've discussed, they're actually deeply unconscious. And nevertheless, we're deploying staff to sit with them, to hold their hand, to say the names of the people who are important to them beside them, to maybe make phone calls so that families' voices can be heard in that person's ear as they're dying. The resourcefulness of of staff across the, the Irish and British health services has been fantastic. So people have been really clear that nobody should die alone and until we were able to have the rules changed so that people could have their own beloveds beside them yes staff were assiduous in being being careful about that yeah and i think it's it's important to say because you know when we say nobody should die alone probably a lot of people were not dying alone they just weren't dying with a family member so there's Mm. quite a difference between dying alone and dying without a family member um, and in fact, just on that note, I a friend of mine died nine years ago. And I remember, you know, in the hospice having conversations with her coming up to her death. And she was noticing which friends were not able to show up for her or that she didn't want to see because they weren't able to to manage her and her dying. And she was wondering out loud, who will be there? You know, who will be around me in my last days? Um, And I remember saying to her, you will probably feel most comfortable with one of the nurses on the ward that you will have befriended in these weeks. And that really gets what you're going through. And it'll probably be somebody who right now is a random stranger, but will be the biggest comfort to you in a few weeks, you know, more so than your friends. As it happens, her beautiful mother came from abroad and, and brought her daughter out of the world as she brought her in. But you know, that there was a conversation we had nine years ago, the importance of the healthcare staff, like you say, and how compassionate and understanding and unfearful, you know, able to truly accompany someone because they're not a relative or a friend. They can do it with utter compassion for this person rather than running their own stories of what am I going to do when this person dies? But what I was going to ask you, um, when we look back, fast forward a year or two years, and we look back at the early days of managing this, you know, currently in Ireland, a lot of people in our nursing homes are now confined to their bedrooms um, and they're not allowed to socialise with each other. There's some people who did die without a family member, family members kept away. Um, I go back to that beautiful young woman uh, nurse in the UK who was pregnant and and lost her life. Are we going to look back and have any regrets with how we managed COVID-19 in the early days or, or even now in terms of the, the humanitarian crisis, if you like, not, not protecting our, our elders and nursing homes better? for those who died of COVID and then those who were going through the emotional isolation of being confined to their bedrooms. What what do you think? Is there anything that you feel should have been done different or could still be done differently that we could, you know, avoid those regrets later on? I think there's a huge problem, isn't there, for people who are in residential care and that kind of battening down of the hatches means that people who by definition, are reaching the ends of their lives. People only live in residential care if they're no longer robust enough to self-care independently. So they already are probably in the last years of their lives. And that time for them is precious. And for we who love them, it's precious now to be barricaded for their protection in their care homes so that was a sensible move that was a difficult move it was a sad move but it has meant that people who were dying of things that we expected them to die of then couldn't be visited in case we brought covid into 
the care home with us and left it there in a closed community where it could damage anybody and everybody else in the care home. So that's been terribly, terribly difficult. And we've been able to learn from the epidemic in particularly the experience in Italy and in Spain in order to put our hospitals on a better prepared footing. And we were on a better prepared footing for the first wave. And I'm saying first wave because there will be more waves, I'm, I'm quite sure. We're left now being behind the curve about residential care. And there's a lovely uh, newspaper story in the British newspapers last week about a residential care home where the staff decided that they were not going to let any of their residents die of COVID. So they moved in and the staff became residents. Nobody is coming in and out. Deliveries are coming for the kitchens and the laundry is being taken away and brought back. But the staff are working three-week residential shifts and they're sleeping in bedrooms that were spare and waiting for new residents to move in and the, and a couple of the staff sitting rooms. And there is this lovely photograph of staff and residents all standing along this great big window waving to their families outside. Aww. And they haven't had a single person contract mm. this, this bug. And the staff who are waiting to come to work, living at home, are self-isolating for 14 days before they come to work. So they know that they're not going to be bringing COVID with them into the care home. That's extraordinary. That is absolutely amazing compassion. And there was an interview with one of the carers who'd been living in for three weeks and she decided to do another extra 10 days. And she has school age, you know, primary school age children who haven't seen their mum for three weeks, seen her on video calls and she calls them several times a day, but she hasn't been able to, to hug them or hold them or be with them for all that time. There's something about how we value the lives of people who are older and something about how being an elder and being venerated in some cultures has not translated itself into our very fast, electronic, clever culture at all. And I think that's probably why we're behind the curve for care homes. And we will see a disproportionate number of deaths, partly because they are closed communities. And it's very, very difficult once a virus gets into a closed community to be able to contain it. And partly because they are a population of people who are vulnerable, that if they do become ill, they are much more likely to die of an illness than somebody who was 20 or 30 years younger than they are with the same illness. So we're now moving to being able to swab and isolate people and trying to contain in that way. And it remains to be seen how that's going to help. But I think there will be a reckoning that we did neglect the care of people, not just in residential care in the communities, there are lots of people who rely on community-based social care, people living with disabilities, people living with learning disabilities, people supporting people who are living with long-term mental health problems, they couldn't get PPE, their staff were off sick and there weren't enough people, there wasn't enough flexibility in the system to replace them. I think there's been a lot of invisible suffering during this. And one of the things I hope is that we will start to have some kind of parity of esteem for mental health services with physical health services and for social support services with physical health services. These are all essential for the well-being of the most vulnerable people in our society and we've neglected them for too long. I was going to ask you on that, Catherine, what do you think we've learned about ageism in our societies as a result of this? I think that's really interesting because I read newspaper reports about blanket resuscitation policies. And when I chase those down, I don't find blanket resuscitation policies. I find blanket communications about the need to discuss your resuscitation preferences and then an inference being made by the newspaper that 
everybody who got this letter is going to have a conversation that says they're not for resuscitation, when in fact, that's, that's not it. So I think one of the things that will come out of this, that I hope will be a good thing that will come out of this, is how important having the opportunity to have conversations around planning ahead, advanced care planning, really are, so that we understand the condition that we've got, whether the condition is simply being nearly 90, like members of my family, or whether the condition is being relatively well for somebody in their 60s, but with a serious and important heart condition that could change things on an instant if it happens to go wrong. And we need to know those things about ourselves. We need to have that conversation with a doctor or a nurse who knows us, who can explain those things, so that then we can say, okay, if I get flu in next year's flu wave, this is how I want to be managed. And if my heart does do that awful thing that you think it probably won't do, but it could do, I would agree to this level of support and that level of input, but I wouldn't agree to something more extraordinary or or I want everything. But you can't have that conversation in a vacuum. The conversation has to be about you, has to be about your health. It has to be with a person who understands what the implications for your health are. And then it's about your values, it's about your beliefs, it's about your wishes and your preferences. And everybody's entitled to have a conversation like that that should be got out and dusted down regularly as well. Because as we get older, the things that are our our life challenges and our health challenges are going to change as well. So I would like one of the legacies of this pandemic to be that we see advanced care planning as a right of every citizen, as a very, very important right of the most vulnerable people in our society. And that instead of newspapers thriving on outrage, that they will actually deliver some helpful, realistic stories about people who were able to plan in advance and who found that having that plan in place enabled the right healthcare decisions to be made for them when it really, really mattered. Yeah, good point and so important. I think, like you said earlier, there's more conversations about death and dying. It's it's all over the newspapers now. And hopefully these are the conversations that will come from it rather than outrage or hysteria um, or clickbait that we'll have some really important conversations coming out of this whole pandemic. I find it really interesting to see um, people's ideologies at play. You know, mm-hmm. it takes something like this or maybe a vote or a referendum to see who your neighbours are, who your friends are, you know, what are people's ideologies. And um, I'm sitting with I have an elderly friend who used to be part of a religious community and she's my she's my one of my kids godmothers and her wife died a few months ago so she is she's bereaved and she has been isolating since the end of february since news first um broke about covid-19 so she's nearly 3 months home alone and in the religious community that she used to be part of and hasn't been in for a number of decades, but is still very connected with them, seven of that community have died, you know, from one one small place here in Dublin. Um, and three of them are in ICU. So that's like a whole section of her, uh, her community gone, just yeah. like that. And then, you know, in the next minute, I'm seeing somebody else saying, this is all just so overrated. Why can't I go to the hairdresser and start playing golf again? And, um, you know, or somebody else, it's all just a conspiracy. They just want to get us all, they, whoever they are, want to get us all vaccinated and they want to control us and they don't want us to have our own minds. And we're looking at all of these realities coexisting how how do we change people's ideologies and biases so that they can see they have certain ways of thinking or certain biases that are preventing them from seeing a much bigger picture that holds so many different realities 
It's it's so fascinating, isn't it? And you're right. We're we're watching it all playing out. One of the um, big polarizing discussions in the United Kingdom, as you will be aware, in Ireland was Brexit. And after Brexit, our society was so divided and hostile. It it was heartbreaking, and we were saying, you know, it's going to take something absolutely extraordinary to heal these rifts. Yeah. And now here we are with Brexiteers delivering parcels for anti-Brexit campaigners who are self-isolating in the same housing estate and um, anti-Brexit people stringing bunting across the street to their pro-Brexit neighbours so that they can celebrate with workers in health and social care. And yes, what we're starting to discover is our fundamental humanity is much more important than the political divides. But how do you help people to see more clearly? I I don't know whether you ever can. And I know that your experience in helping people through bereavement will mirror this all of the time. We know about grief and we know about bereavement in theory because we know people who've been bereaved and we know that they've been sad and we know they must miss the person who died. But we worry about talking to them and we think maybe we might upset them. So we cross the road and we don't make eye contact and we don't phone them up because we don't want to make things any worse. And then we are bereaved. And once you're bereaved and you absolutely understand that it cannot be made worse, there is not a place that's worse than this. Nobody can say anything that makes me feel any worse than this. Now, I'm so sorry that I crossed the road. I'm so sorry that I didn't make eye contact. I'm so sorry that I made it about me because I worried that I might say the wrong thing. Yeah, yeah. So I think just like grief for all of these things, until somebody's had somebody in their family who they loved, who's been so sick that they nearly died of this illness or who has been so sick that they did die of this illness, they're not going to see that it's not... A conspiracy that it's not about a pro-vaccine program. Um, it's probably not about 5G masks. It's about being human, having human bodies that are frail. It's about viruses being not intelligent beings, but simply bits of chemical that replicate in a way that damages us inside and that we don't have a choice about it. But we do have a choice about how we respond to it. And that's the Viktor Frankl thing, isn't it? That actually we have a choice here. And the choice is that we can look after each other and we can evolve our compassion into a much more joined up, compassionate society. And that is happening. Or we can turn our backs and say, no, it's all a political stunt and Mm -hmm. turn away. And there are a few people who will do that. And I guess the rest of us in our compassion have to just be sad that that. You think are the changes we're going to see in the way we live our lives in the next few months and possibly years or possibly forever. I think back to 9-11 and I was in the States at the time when 9-11 happened. I was uh, working in San Diego temporarily and it was a couple of weeks before I was able to get out and fly home because there was no flights. But I remember being at the airport and, you know, ordering a meal and getting this plastic knife and fork and thinking, oh, my goodness. And there was people weeping, getting onto the flight because they were so scared and everything was different. The security was different. There was, you know, an air of so- everyone was so solemn around the place. And it's never gone back to the way it was. We still don't have metal cutlery. Um, people are still cautious when they're traveling. We're not allowed to bring liquids. That has changed us fundamentally, mm. that event around the world, and changed how we live our lives. So how do you think we might see um, COVID-19 changing us in a way that 9-11, as an example, did? It's interesting, isn't it? Already we've discovered much different ways of being in contact despite being distanced from each other. Uh, We've always thought of loving people as getting close and cuddling. And now actually we're loving people by staying apart so that we can't possibly be the person who gives them the virus. So we're learning new ways of behaving and we're learning new ways of connecting. 
we've got people who always didn't want to have mobile phones and those kind of funny devices now connecting up and being able to chat to families. We've got people who've had family in other parts of the world, you know, family in Australia, family family living out in uh, the Far East, who have had to relate to each other like this for years and years. And now the rest of us are discovering that we have to relate like that to our family who live in the next street just for the time being. So maybe we'll be a little bit more cognizant of that. But what's really thrilled me is the number of meetings I've been able to go to without leaving my own living room. And in fact, not even always leaving my own pajamas. And that's stand up and let's see what you're wearing. No, no, look, I've got, got, got my mountain trousers <laughs> on today. And your pink fluffy slippers. Uh-huh. <laughs> So I think that one of the things that's been really interesting is we were on a trajectory for climate chaos before all of this happened. Yes. And we've discovered that we can switch that off and it makes a difference and that the smog levels in Wuhan have settled and the birds are singing there again. Now, clearly, if the economy crashes, then we're all going to have a really difficult time. But I think we're discovering that we can live more simply that stuff isn't as important as people in relationships, that we can connect without traveling in a way that burns fuel and burns time. Um, I can go to a meeting in Vancouver and then go to a meeting in Dublin in the same day. And that's pretty good, isn't it? And it's not like time travel. I haven't taken my slippers off. That's really excellent. So I think that it's hard to project how much we learn long time. You you always hope that there'll be great learning and that society will change for the better. And that's all really kind of idealistic. And I hope all of those things. But I also think that as soon as we can get the economy running again, there'll be smog in Wuhan again. So we need to just more than anything else, I think, realise, look how resilient we've been. This came out of nowhere. It has swept the world. It has broken hearts. It has broken families. It has broken economies. But we're all somehow getting on with getting on. And that being human has something much more important to it than, than stuff. That's, I think, the message I hope we'll all take out of it. I love that. It's a lovely note to finish on, Catherine. Being human is so much more than stuff, amassing stuff that we can't bring with us anyway. Yeah, lots of food for thought. Thank you so much, Dr. Catherine Mannix. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Liz. so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice and if your grief is making you unwell please do go to your healthcare provider. Grief is a normal part of being human, you're not alone. Once again please do consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener supported podcast and we rely on your support to keep us going. The music was written by Silly Wizard and performed by Sue Hart and Martin Craddock, especially for the Shapes of Grief podcast. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well and take very good care. On a storm-torn shoreline, a woman was standing, dust grey hung like jewels in her hair. This is the one.
pouring of love And she's prayed to the gods both of men and of sailors Not to cast their crowned or her blood She has come down to condemn the wild ocean For the murderous loss of her Hey, hey, hey.